0: So if you take, let's say, the thousand-year history of the Roman Empire
1: from the founding of the Republic in 509 BC through to the fall of the Empire in the West, which is in the late 400s, where in that thousand-year history might modern America find some analogous historical setting? If it's going to be anywhere, I think it's in this period between the end of their great wars of conquest and the rise of the Caesars.
0: I'm joined today by Mike Duncan, the creator of the massively popular award-winning podcast series, The History of Rome. And in 2013, Duncan kicked off his second hugely popular series, Revolutions. He is on here to discuss uh, The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic, his new book. Mike, thanks for joining me today on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you very much for having me. Your book talks about the period before the fall of the Roman Republic, not often discussed. The period roughly, you know, book says 133 to 80, I think you even go a little bit before that, and that's B.C. Rome is successful, defeats Carthage, expands its territory as a republic, but then struggles with class divisions, materialism, how to spread the wealth, and all kinds of questions like that it's something that you see possibly as a link to american society today so wonder if just generally you could talk about that well yeah so the book does cover it's you know it's roughly
1: 146 is where the the launching point of the book is which is when Rome emerges victorious, finally, uh, in the Punic Wars or over, over Carthage in the Punic Wars. But also they've, they've, by this point, they've, they've conquered Greece. Uh, they've conquered most of Spain. They are by far the largest power in the Mediterranean world, even if they haven't, uh, officially moved over to Syria or Egypt yet. When they decide to, uh, it'll be very easy for them because they're by far the strongest power in the Mediterranean world. And there is, um, there is this, there's this pretty close link between the Roman Republic as it had existed for centuries emerging as the strongest military and political power and then having that triumph lead directly to the problems that ultimately undid the republican political system where, you know, Rome is not on the brink of falling at this point. Rome is as powerful as Rome has ever been, but the, uh, the political institutions, participatory government, um, You know, people having elections, uh, laws being passed by uh, popular assemblies rather than just decreed by some autocratic dictator. Um, All of all of those Republican institutions were threatened, really, by the triumph of 146 B.C.
0: Let's talk about the Gracchi brothers. Uh, Central Disperius is Tiberius Gracchus and his experimentation with populism. He comes from an aristocratic family. But he gets involved with populism and maybe you could talk a bit about that.
1: As, as I say, this is pretty early in the book. You know, we're, we're at chapter one of the book is Tiberius Gracchus and his tribunate that comes along in 133 BC. So you have this triumph of the Roman Republic in 146. And then you have 10 or 15 years where there are all kinds of social, there's, there's a lot of social fallout Mm -hmm. from this victory where the armies have gone out. They've conquered all of these territories, these incredibly wealthy territories. Um, those armies have returned with the wealth of the Mediterranean essentially in their baggage train. The rich senatorial families are now able to massively invest in slaves in a way that they had never been able to massively invest in slaves before. You know, Rome had always had slaves, but the massive increase in slave labor after 146 BC started having a major impact on like the free laborers in in Italy, the smallhold farmers uh, stopped being able to compete with a lot of the larger concerns, the larger magnates. And so you started having what had once been the backbone of the republic, which was a, you know, a, a land, a small landowning family, you know, not one of the great senatorial families, but they had enough property to qualify to serve in the legions. They had enough property to qualify to or, or they, they had the, the means to participate in politics now they stopped having any of those means and you started having this significant socioeconomic dislocation that what Tiberius Gracchus is going to try to do and he's just you know he's one of a of a group of sort of reformist senators who were looking at this and saying i you know this is really disrupting our way of life and not only that but there there you know there's this quirk in in roman uh, military in, in where you had to be rich enough to serve in the legions. It wasn't a matter of you were so poor that you joined the army. It was, Oh, I, I have enough wealth that I qualify to go serve in this prestigious thing. That is the legions. And they stopped being able to uh, recruit as much as they had been able to previously. So Tiberius Gracchus comes along with a, a major piece of reform where they're going to start more or less confiscating land from the rich and doling it back out to those who had lost their property over the last 10 over the last generation or so
0: and um it doesn't go well for Gracchus in the end right uh, it does not it does not go well for tiberius
1: crocus <laughs> at all right and because, it's sort of like
0: he who he who lives by the sword of populism uh goes the other way as well
1: yeah and i mean they are they are using this in a lot of ways um the thing that happens when you have this rising economic inequality, which is something that was going on in Rome at the time, is you you have so much anger and so much resentment uh, against the people, the small group of people who are benefiting, that it's very easy for then some popular orator or some populist demagogue to go use that energy and harness it for their own personal political gain. They're they're gonna ride they're gonna ride this anger um, to power. Now, when it comes to the Gracchi. I mean, I personally believe that both Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus were interested in reforming uh, Roman politics and Roman economics to stabilize what they saw was a very unstable situation. Mm -hmm. But they were clearly also using it to gain personal power. I mean, that's what Roman politics was all about. It was being the strongest, being the most influential. And they saw this populism as a path to power. And so they wrote it. But, you know, you can't you can't just attack the richest, wealthiest, and most powerful families in any society, and not expect a uh, fairly significant pushback. And uh, the Grokai certainly experienced fairly significant pushback. And they both wound up
0: dead in a pile of blood. And at different times. And it, it's his his brother, Gaius Gracchus, actually follows Tiberius. Uh, Tiberius ends up after beaten by clubs and by, um, by a senatorial mob in the Forum and then is thrown into the Tiber River. Uh, his brother operates at a different time but does almost the same thing, which I, I find kind of fascinating. He just kind of follows in the footsteps, even maybe prophesizes about what's going to happen to him. You know, Gaius was clearly
1: not deterred by what had happened to his brother. And because his brother had stirred up a, a fairly significant political movement um, that the Senate had hoped was crushed when, you know, as you said, this this senatorial mob uh, comes in and kills 300 people on the Capitoline Hill at the end of uh, one thirty three. So Tiberius or excuse me, uh, Gaius, who is Tiberius's younger brother, he's about 10 years younger, um, walks into this and he becomes Sort of by default, the leader of this movement, they all look now from the dead Tiberius to the living Gaius and say, okay, well now, now you're the one who's in charge of this project. And, and clearly Gaius was even more ambitious than Tiberius was. You know, Tiberius, the, the crisis over Tiberius Gracchus and his tribunate in 133 was about a, a single land redistribution bill. We're going to take some land from the rich. We're going to, we're going to chop it up into smaller parts and we're going to hand it out to the poor. Um, Gaius was running a slate of reforms that really, it was was unprecedented in Roman history, Uh, the number of things that he was trying to fix at once, where land redistribution was just one part of it, but he was also trying to introduce um, subsidized grain uh, for the poor urban population of Rome. He wanted to improve the road networks. He wanted to create new colonies. He wanted to uh, stimulate trade and try to get a handle on the fact that Rome was now not just one city state among many in the Mediterranean, it was really the hub now of the Mediterranean economy. Uh, so he's trying to reform Roman politics and, and Roman economics to take note of the fact that they are now this supreme power. And that also the, the, the balance in Roman politics had become wildly out of whack where this small group of Roman senatorial families held all the wealth and all the power. And uh, that was really threatening the stability of the entire of the entire Roman project. So he went at it hard and, and nobody before him had ever pursued that many reforms all at once. And nobody would again until Julius Caesar, Um, you know, Gaius Gracchus really is in that way, a forerunner of um sort of the breadth and depth of reforms that Julius Caesar had to introduce much later, Um, in part because the Gracchus brothers failed.
0: And it's uh, interesting that the, 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 question you, you, um, you raised and, and sort of answered, it's always the question with populists is, are they doing it for, do they really have the nation's best interests at heart? And we, that question gets turned in a lot of figures, even in American, uh, political history. Certainly the Kennedy brothers, uh, you could, you could look at it very similarly, coming from a very wealthy family. Always this question about the Jack Kennedy really, um, Really, you know, was he really concerned with the average person or was it just because he wanted to become president? His father wanted to use his money to make him president. The same with Robert Kennedy, you know, this. I wonder sometimes if you can even draw the lines like in other words the people can be of simultaneous motives there at the same time in one side of their brain want to do good things on the other side says i need to get elected and and
1: i and i i think that's exactly right when it comes to the gracchi
0: um
1: because certainly they were ambitious and they were writing this as a means to personal power um but i don't I mean, and this is an argument that has gone back to literally when they died. I mean, cause there were two political factions, they would publish pamphlets, they would publish histories about each other and they would try to, each side would try to paint each other in as negative a light as possible, which is usually how these things go. It's like you, you say I'm doing this for, for noble reasons and I just want to help people while your enemies say of you, Oh, you're just saying that because you're, you know, you're greedy and ambitious. The mix is there for the Grok. I, I think some people in the history of, um, World politics have certainly been nakedly cynical about the things that they say and do just to get political power. Um, I, I just don't happen to think that the Grok guy were among them. And I, I think that the best at least American analogy to the Grok guy would be the Roosevelt's um, who are very similar. They, they, too, come from, you know, one of these inner circle aristocratic style families, um, old Dutch New York. Yeah, yeah, like like that. And then there were, you know, they, when Theodore Roosevelt comes along in the 1890s, I mean, the United States had massive problems. We had labor problems. We had, you know, sanitation issues. We had, uh, you know, child labor. Like all of these things that the Progressives wound up attacking. Um, I think certainly Roosevelt wanted all of those reforms because he thought that they were good and necessary for the country. But also, I mean, of course, this is that's his ticket to power, which is also what he wants. Um, so I, I think definitely there's a mix of the two.
0: And, uh, for the Roosevelt family, for both of them really, but particularly Theodore, the, the relatives were reacted like almost as if he had pursued a, a career in the sanitation department. Like, what do you, with the Roosevelt name, what do you want to be doing? Getting involved in elected politics and,
1: well, and I mean, it, it, uh, there was a, there's an old, uh, not, ag- it's aging now. Um, but H.W. Brandt's biography of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt is called traitor to his class. Um, and I think that. I think that pretty much gets down to it because the Gracchi, I mean one of the things is you, the Gracchi I think in sort of maybe the popular imagination since they're not really that well covered I don't think most people have a good handle on who the Gracchi were you you think of them more like um like lower class like labor leaders mm. um who coming up from the streets and they were rabble-rousers and like that's not who the Gracchi were at all they were the inner circle of the Roman nobility there was nobody who was more connected to more powerful people than than the Gracchi family was they were married they were married and gave birth up the Wazoo to the the core of the Republican nobility.
0: Is it uh, reflecting? It's a little abstract, but uh, yeah, I'm thinking of this. Is it reflecting perhaps a you know weakness in Republican or Democratic systems that our elected officials have to keep gaining? There has to be constant momentum. you know an English monarch can sit there forever and just the, by virtue of the fact that they're a member of the Windsor family uh, or the like they're they're uh, they're fine they're they are who they are but the the um in in de- democratic political systems the the ultimate rulers have to keep gaining, have to keep showing the people something in Rome's case, it seemed to be throughout your book there's new conquests, new slaves bringing back games at the at the various triumphs and and the like, and does that lead to pressures that 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 cause uh democracies to constantly be under the threat of self-destructing
1: probably um but you know in inertia of a of a monarchy that believes i mean i also do the you know the i do revolutions as mm-hmm. well, which is you know about modern political revolutions. And there's clearly no guarantee of safety for a monarchy that is just going to be inert and say, well, by the grace of God and the blood of my veins, I get to be king tomorrow, no matter what you people think. Um, you know, that no is not problems uh, there it's too. Not, that is, yeah. That's <laughs> not exactly like inoculation <laughs> from being overthrown. And in, in the Roman case, what's interesting about the Romans is, um, and what, what a major threat posed by the Gracchi was. Is that they were very conservative and they didn't want to have to necessarily pander to the mob, you know, beyond having a great military victory because war and politics were so closely linked um, in in the Roman mind. And certainly I think the conquest of the Mediterranean has as much to do with domestic politics than it does um foreign affairs or any sort of need to go off conquering like the leaders would go out there looking for people to beat so they could come back home and say, hey, I'm a great conquering hero. Um, but what the Gracchi represented in in terms of reform, um, simply reforming the system was something that the conservative senatorial oligarchy didn't want and were resistant to. So that's that's a huge cleavage that starts to spell the end of the republic. And, you know, we go into in the book is the people who wanted to change things and reform things and the people who wanted to just keep things exactly as they were and pretend like there were no problems.
0: I was uh, in a bookstore a few years ago and came across a book uh, by H.J. Haskell and then learned that, looking it up, that it was a big hit in 1939, and it was uh, the New Deal in Old Rome, and the side of it had uh, the NRA eagle right out of the Roosevelt administration, but with the Roman abbreviation above it instead of NRA and it essentially was just uh, demonstrating how the Romans had engineered kind of a New Deal-type system. Uh, the reason I find it interesting is there we are in 1939. America just can't get enough of Rome. We're always comparing our own republic and measuring, it seems. The founders, of course, uh, had many books on their bookshelves. Uh, Gibbon's book would probably be the most common. certainly was on Jefferson's bookshelf. Uh, Cato the Younger. Was a required reading play for most people, one of Washington's favorite. They think that Patrick Henry got his lines, Liberty or Death, from that play. We just always seem to have these, uh, Roman models. I mean, well, I think the refascination of Western civilization
1: generally, um, but Anglo America in particular, um, comes, you know, it comes back from the Renaissance and it comes, through to the Enlightenment, because the, you know, the, these guys, like the founding fathers and the United States of America is principally a project of the Enlightenment, which is like a very particular uh, moment in the intellectual and cultural history of Europe. So what these guys were operating inside of was a, a thousand years or more of, um, of feudal monarchies and despotism or, you know, at what they would describe as despotism, right? Where you don't have rights. You don't have you don't have the ability to truly participate in government in the way that you might want to. And if you go looking in history for some model that you can say this is how it should be, this is how it could be, um, the Roman Republic is a 100 percent right there waiting for you. And all of the intellectuals in Europe had sort of rediscovered the ancient world. And this is true, too, in, in France. You know, I mean, the, the French revolutionaries were as obsessed with the Roman Republic as the American revolutionaries were. This is going on in Britain. This is going on all over the place. The fact that there was this powerful institution that existed for centuries and centuries um, as with without a king. Right. This was some, it was it was provable that it could work. And it was provable that it could work on a large scale. And then the fall of the Republic becomes this, um, you know, this very tragic moment in the history of civilization. So, yeah, the, the founding fathers were nakedly trying to recreate something that they had sort of mythologized in their own minds as as the, the great alternative to the feudal monarchies under which they believed they lived.
0: And, and and that's a good point mythologized but i wonder how much of that goes on like as i mentioned they had gibbon's book anything in particular i know it's a little little offball question but anything in particular about gibbon's that is different from the other history book in any way i don't have any idea that there is it's just because that was the prominent book at the time
1: yeah well again the, the gibbon book is also 100% a project of the enlightenment because there there's two important things about gibbon um, his, Number one, his central thesis is that Christianity was the reason why uh, the Republic, excuse me, why the Roman Empire fell. Uh, so this is this dovetails very nicely with general with general enlightenment attitudes towards Christianity at the time. Like, this is the, you know, this is the backward force of tyranny that is, you know, keeping us from learning things and knowing things and and being free people. You know, you have like the, the Catholic Church is this reactionary force that just wants to keep us all enslaved. This is what the general enlightenment idea of of Christianity was. And this is built in a little bit to the American Republic when it gets founded in the, the separation of church and state. You're trying to keep the two separate from each other um, now we we have we have to say that i i don't think gibbon is correct like even a little bit um i think that his central thesis that christianity led to the decline and fall of the roman empire is patently false and has been proven false like over and over and over again uh, which we don't need to get into that but the other really the, the other thing that gibbon introduces beyond just um beyond just this thesis that is wrong is he's considered one of the first uh really modern historians where he's, he moved in a major way from history being a, a sort of a literary genre that is just teaching tales of morality, um, into a, a more scientific version of the craft, which is actually going back to sources and investigating them, um, and trying to, as much as possible, recreate what it is that happened using, uh, using real, real sources. I mean, the historiographic method that we all rely on today, um, much of it was pioneered by Gibbon and, and guys around that same time. So what the decline and fall of the Roman Empire gives you is the first really serious attempt to take a stab at actually knowing what happened as opposed to just things like uh, like the play Cato the Younger, um, which is a, a literary genre not a uh, not a historic not a work of history
0: how good do we feel about the the sources on rome i know a lot was preserved um throughout the middle ages and and all of that but you know a lot of my podcast for instance i'm doing uh I'm, I'm concentrating a lot on the early founding of the american republic a little bit before perhaps once in a while i run into some situations where we just can't we don't even know things because there was no written record and i wonder if i pr- if i've always if i'm to provide a roman example you know sometimes the answer might be oh you know you don't know if that really happened you know how much is myth and how much do we really really know from from documents that we feel good about i would say when i
1: made the move from the history of rome to revolutions which is basically rocketing forward in history uh 1500 2000 years um the increase in available sources and documentation it, uh, approaches infinity, right Because you could if, if you were so if you so desired, you could sit down and in not too long, literally read every single thing that we know about, the Roman Empire at least in the literary sources. You can you can read all of available Livy. You can read all of available Polybius and Plutarch and Sallust. Like you can you can just knock these guys off on a list. And probably the the sum total of all of that um might not even equal the amount simply in the papers of George Washington, right? Who's one guy who lived through one particular period in history. That doesn't even get to the papers of Napoleon, uh, the papers of, um, of Robespierre, right? Like any of this. Um, so what we know about Roman history is incredibly circumscribed compared to what we know about anything that happened in modern history, because we don't, the big, the biggest thing is we don't really have any of the primary sources. Um, we don't have really letters. Uh, we have some snippets of memoirs. But we don't have government records, really. We don't have we don't have letters. uh, We have histories that were written, but those are just really old secondary sources in a way. So, I mean, even Livy, you couldn't we consider him in terms of Roman history to be a primary source. But really, he's just he's working from the primary sources. He's working from the documentation and the government records that have all been burned and lost to history. Um, so it, it's it's an it's a nearly it's a nearly infinite amount of knowledge that we have about modern history than ancient history.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating thing. I had uh, Tom Oliphant on talking about uh, Kennedy, the amount that's available. Like Tom Oliphant said, when he saw in the Kennedy Library, the amount that's available. We haven't scratched the surface of of really going through and reading all the letters of somebody like a Kennedy from a modern era where everything was carbon copied, you know. And Lyndon Johnson, uh, I mean, it, it's it's definitely known because we have um we have the we have the fellow you know that's doing the uh, biographies caro 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 that's right i saw him interviewed and he's he's really still alive thank god but he's he's trucking towards his last uh version but he has all kinds of compartments everywhere with lyndon johnson information these are just like you say one modern man you know but uh but uh, no that is a fascinating point although i'd also say that maybe in some ways we also avoid getting uh a few letters where people might take you down a wrong path at least there's some kind of even if it's secondary, some kind of consensus history.
1: Yeah, we do. We, yeah, we do have that. And I mean, I, and I think for this book, I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't like, uh, to brag or anything. This is just proof that, that I, th- I think I've pretty much read every scrap mm. of, of, of everything that you could possibly read about this period. I mean, my, my book, which is, you know, covers 146 to one, or excuse me, to about 78 BC to the death of Sulla. Mm. I mean, that's, it's Plutarch. Um, it's Solust, it's, uh, Appian and, um, Cicero. Okay. So it's Appian, Cicero, Solist and, uh, and Plutarch are the sources that's going to cover 85% of everything that we know. And that's true. You, you go back and read, you know, you know, PhDs, uh, professors in history, the, the great titans of, uh, of Roman historiography all the way back to Gibbon. you know, we're still working from the same really limited number of sources.
0: But you breathe life into it. Uh, A reminder that I'm talking to Mike Duncan, the author of The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. Highly recommend the book. You'll know Mike Duncan as the podcaster of both revolutions and also the history of Rome. Now, you breathe life into it, and what's the difference between doing a podcast on Rome and then writing a book? I'm Jane Polez
1: There's a couple of differences. I think probably the biggest it, from a from a writing standpoint because I you know I I write and script everything and then I read it, you know, I'm not just um I don't just sit with a pile of notes and try to try to make it up as I go along. I I script everything out. Um with with both History of Roman Revolutions, I'm sort of producing a chapter a week. It's very it's a very serialized um style of writing like um mm-hmm. So once once an episode is gone into the can and I've recorded it and it's gone out the door, now it's time to work on next week's episode. And then you work on next week's episode and you're just sort of working week to week to week to week. And there's not a ton of time to look back. Um, writing the book was. Really fun for, for this reason is that I, you know, was able to get to the end of it and then go back to the beginning and rewrite it and then go back to the beginning and rewrite it again. So the book is going to feel, I think, much more like a, a large complete package from beginning to end, um, than anything that I can necessarily do with the podcast, which are very like, much like a serialized chapter, uh, chapter by chapter where you can't really go back and be like, God, I wish I had introduced this concept 13 episodes ago, but I'm going to have to do it now. Um, so that, that was, that was a pretty big change. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then also just all I've ever written, uh, from the, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Um, and going back to the very first episode of the history of Rome, um, I always knew that whatever I wrote, I would be able to read out loud to people and I would be able to narrate, uh, what it is that I'm writing, uh, what I, what I have written, um, but with the book, you know, I just have to plop it in your lap and hope that whatever sentences I wrote uh, carry you to the next sentence and the next sentence and then the next paragraph and keep you turning the page. I'm not going to be there to sort of proverbially turn the page for you. Uh, so I had to I had to, th- I had to think a lot harder about um, sort of the quality and clarity of each sentence and how it how it linked to the next idea and the next idea to keep people involved without me just sort of droning on in their uh, in their earbuds.
0: No, I, a great job, I think, and I, I feel like it really does move quickly and blends from one to the other. I mean, part of it is because some of that history is blending. You have relatives of one, uh, character in the story, uh, taking the next act, uh, forward, of course, uh, so often. The publisher is public affairs, and, um, so you, you have a bit of a message that you feel that, like, this period, 133 or 146 to 80 BC, Is a period to look at, uh, if, if we're to understand, like, where we might be now, uh, with the American Republic. It brings up so many issues, uh, when thinking about Rome, like, of course, income inequality being one, uh, we're not distributing land these days, we did We did have some of those debates back at the time of the Homestead Act and the Civil War, and and, and even before then, uh, Revolutionary War veterans and land grants and things like that, taking loyalist property. But uh, we do talk about income distribution, and uh, there's issues of uh, immigration, citizenship, seem to be a big thing in this period of Rome uh starting with the peninsula italy we we probably figures monitor some might figure that hey you know rome was there and the italians got you know a better treatment in rome than the the people in spain or or other conquered provinces would but there were a lot of issues even starting with just the people right outside of rome and could they be roman citizens and those are issues that were were hard fought right rome had more or less conquered
1: italy by about 300 bc there's a whole there's a whole series of they're called the samnite wars um, that wound up engulfing the entire peninsula where where rome had become very powerful and was fighting against these these other city-states uh inside of italy and rome emerges victorious in this but though they had quote-unquote conquered italy um the way that the settlements unfolded the post-war settlements unfolded was that rome really uh signed treaties with these city states rather than annex them directly into Rome. So they were still technically called allies of Rome as opposed to citizens of Rome. And all that the Romans really wanted from these people is for them to provide troops for the legions. Uh, When the Romans went to war, they said, we're not even going to really tax you that heavily and you can run your own city however you see fit. But anytime a Roman magistrate comes along and says, look, we need soldiers for the legions, you're going to provide it. So these other, you know, the Etruscans and the Umbrians and the Samnites are all living under essentially a Roman protectorate for 200 years or so. This was not a bad deal for most of those city states, and they kind of happily lived in this in this coexistence of allyship as opposed to as opposed to annex citizenship. But by again, we get to this point in 146 B.C. where the Roman conquest all of that wealth is accruing in Roman hands. And so it's not just that poor Romans are being left out in the cold. It's also all of these Italian allies are also starting to chafe under this, under this problem of, of wealth and power accruing in Rome and really leaving them outside of it. Even though they were providing two thirds of the manpower of the legions, they were being left with, with a significantly less portion of the spoils of war. Um So you start to have, The Italians say, look, we don't want to be second class citizens anymore. We don't want to have just a few rights. We want to be able to vote in the assemblies. We want to be able to decide like, who runs this thing called Rome that we all acknowledge we're basically subjects of. We want to be able to vote for consuls. We want to be able to vote on laws. And for 50 years, the Romans were incredibly resistant to the idea of letting these Italians into the system. So even though they were all basically of the same civilization and all under Roman authority, the Romans didn't want to allow them to have like the benefits of citizenship. They had the they had the burdens, but not any of the benefits. Um, and this in the book, obviously, we get to chapter eight, chapter nine, and everything blows up. And the Romans were so resistant for so long that the Italians wind up wound up having to uh, launch a full blown insurrection and in, engulf in, uh, in Gulf Italy in a civil war that was really avoidable. You know, all the all the Romans had to do was, was grant citizenship, and things would have just been fine, um, but instead it led to a, a giant civil war that wound up nearly destroying the Republic just right then.
0: Is it appropriate to talk about Gaius Marius in that uh, sense? He seems to be uh, a very popular, intelligent, successful general, but he... I guess because the Italians were with him in a lot of the fights, he, he, and maybe a little bit because he's seeking elected office as well, takes on that cause. And Gaius's
1: biography, too, you know, he comes, he comes from a city that, uh, was outside of Rome that had only been, the, the Romans did, you know, every once in a while slowly extend or grant rights to some particular person or some particular town here and there. Um, and, and Marius's town or was, recently brought into the roman fold just a couple of generations before um but marius himself quite readily identified socially with with the italians and he was also a soldier at heart more than anything else and so he could see quite plainly that the difference between roman and italian was utterly meaningless when it came to uh prosecuting a war for example like you just as he he famously he he was he was really big. He would constantly award citizenship to people when he was consul, uh, even if he didn't necessarily have the authority to. And one time he came back to the Senate and they were like, "You got to stop, you got to stop issuing citizenship to all these people. You you don't actually have the legal right to do this." And he's like, "Well, you know, I can't. I couldn't hear you know the sound of the law over the din of battle." Right. where Because because like when we're out there and we're fighting and dying with each other, like we don't give a crap like who's from, you know, who's who's an Etruscan and who's a Roman. We're all fighting alongside each other and we deserve to share equally in the spoil. So he was very Marius attains unprecedented power at the end of the second century B.C. And he is extremely liberal with doling out citizenship to the Italians in a way that ruffles a lot of feathers in Rome at the time.
0: It seems like when a nation is challenged by a military conflict and I suppose in in the case of Rome at the time we're speaking of it's you know they had finished with Carthage but they still had some revolts in Spain they had the 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 Italian wars and then uh, the war in Numidia that kind of a challenge to the authority of the republic means that you have to go to the people to raise an army to fight and then the people don't always want to just do that for free
1: yeah and in in marius's case too you know yeah you you do have to reward people for their service you can't just call on them demand that they save your house um and then not even pay them and just be like okay thanks for saving my house see you later uh you, you got to you have to recognize their dignity and what contribution they had made um and one of the things especially what marius was doing when he is giving citizenship to many of his veterans is then those people would return back to their homes home cities they would now have roman citizenship and they would have all these special rights and privileges where their next-door neighbor who is just like them in every way just doesn't have that so you started getting this like it wasn't just that romans had citizens Excuse me. Romans had citizenships and uh, allies didn't inside of allied communities. There would be some who had these privileges and some who didn't. And that created a lot of a lot of resentment uh, in those Italian communities.
0: How much uh, you know, you've said that the premise is that you're telling your, your some of your listeners have asked uh, for like what what point uh in roman history is should we think of america uh, and now in 2017 on that spectrum and there's certainly you know, as i said a publisher public affairs certainly a sort of premise in this book is that we're we're looking at this the same time period but what scope are you comfortable with with that is this is this like um this time period 146 to 80 bc might be like what america is now is it it is like what America now is. It it could be, you know, I mean, uh, how much do you how much do you think? Is it just a potential model or is it uh, it doesn't seem definite, you know?
1: No, no, no. It is it is every qualifier you can put okay. on it. I would put on it. Um, history doesn't work like um, like, you know, you literally replay the events of the past uh, wearing different clothes. Uh, that's not that's not the way history actually works. But. I have always felt uh, quite comfortable and quite fine. Um, maybe because I, I work outside of the, um, you know, the, the inner sanctum of, of academia. That if we're going, you know, if we're going to learn history and we're going to look at history and we're going to learn, we're going to learn things about it. I don't think that there's any problem trying to find historical analogy or things that can inform the present, right? It, it, if it's not enough to just say, oh, I want to learn something about this period in history just because. Um, That's fine. But if you're looking to try to make decisions in uh, in the contemporary world, if you're trying to find some sort of anchor to try to figure out what is happening around you, um, I think it's fine to go back into the past and try to find um, historical analogies and try to learn from them, because what what else is the what else is the point of it? So if. If you take, let's say, the thousand-year history of the Roman Empire, yeah, the Roman Empire, from the founding of the Republic in 509 BC through to the fall of the Empire in the West, um, which is in the late 400s, you know, where in that thousand-year history um, might modern America find some analogous historical setting? And it's clearly not at the founding stage. Where you know a bunch of settlers get together and found something. It's uh it's not in the regional conquest phase. You know, America's way beyond just being a regional power. We have achieved a measure of global power that it's especially after the end of the Cold War is quite analogous to where Rome found itself um at the end of at the end of the Punic War. So they were they were the strongest by a mile um military power in the Mediterranean world. In a lot of the ways that America emerged as a, as a hyperpower, military power at the end of the Cold War. But has, you know, has the Republic fallen? You know, has Caesar come along? Do we live under a literal mi- military dictatorship? You know, or if you keep progressing even further into the 300s and 400s AD, the AD 300s, 400s, you know, are we at the point where we're being, we're being literally overrun by like, like huge armies of Franks that we just can't defeat in battle. And, you know, they just are squatting in Arctic. like, no, none of that. We're not anywhere near any of that. If it's going to be anywhere, I think it's in this period between, you know, the end of their, the, their great wars of conquest and the rise of the Caesars.
0: There's certainly rich lessons in Rome by any objective standard, no matter what side of the political spectrum one comes from um, in terms of challenges. Everyone has, everyone would like to deal better with corruption. Right. Everyone would like things to be more fair. There might be one side that says, "Well, I want it to be fair through the opportunity." The other one, "I want it to be fair through a direct uh, cash payment or something like that." Or, but uh, these are in Rome definitely rich examples um, that always seem to be to match today. Uh, I wanted to uh, quickly, as and and I'll probably do it badly, but read um, a letter of uh, Thomas Jefferson to John Adams, 1819. Shows you how much Rome was on his mind, but it does seem that hes it's a little bit of a two minds on Rome. Here it is. uh, I have been amusing myself lately with reading voluminous letters of Cicero. They certainly breathe the purest effusions of an exalted patriot, while the parasite Caesar is left in odious contrast. When the enthusiasm, however, kindled by Cicero's pen and principles, subsides into cool reflection, I ask myself, what was that government, which the virtues of Cicero were so zealous to restore, and the ambition of Caesar to subvert? And if Caesar had been virtuous, as he was daring and sagacious, what could he, even in the plenitude of his usurped power, have done to lead his fellow citizens into good government? I do not say restore it, because they never had it. If their people had indeed been, like ours, enlightened, peaceable, and really free— the answer would be obvious. Restore independence to all your foreign conquests. Relieve Italy from the government of the rabble of Rome and consult as a nation entitled to self-government and do its will. So Jefferson taking a, maybe it's an easy punch at uh, at history that can't answer and, and saying that the Americans are, are better than the, the Romans. But I think it kind of shows like very often we think that the, the American founders emulated Rome. And maybe they did, but I actually think they just existed with a cons- concept of Rome that they liked sometimes. They liked some parts of it and they didn't like other parts of it.
1: Yeah. And Je- I mean, Jefferson is very, very famously able to compartmentalize things. Um, so he can, he can say all of that while basically setting up a government that in most respects resembled the, um, the senatorial oligarchy of Rome, where, I mean, when he's writing there in 1819, this, this is right before, obviously, the, the populist dam led by, uh, by led, led by Andrew Jackson comes along. Um, but you know, that the early, the early federal government is very much, uh, resembles the, like, the landowning aristocracy of Rome. And then obviously they're having no difficulties whatsoever, uh, expanding westward and conquering everything in their sight so yeah Je- Jefferson is I mean he's he's trying to get at something and it's it's always nice um, to sort of see through Cicero a little bit because this is a big problem is is the myth- the mythology of the Republic and you say oh the Republic fell so that's a bad thing well it, it was a closely held oligarchy that uh, only a very few people were ever truly benefiting from um, so what was it worth restoring and that's a that is a good question that Jefferson that Jefferson asked at least at that moment at least at that moment in his life when he was putting uh quill to pen
0: well that's true i do think uh whenever i read the jefferson adams letters i think a different jefferson certainly it's not the same as president jefferson all the time <laughs> uh it's a much more philosophical one uh, they certainly created a senate i mean jefferson didn't but the the people that created the constitution were quick to create create that senate to go right to the 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 the, the, cenics, the old the old men uh, to guard against the uproar of the assembly. If it was up to Tom Paine, it would be one big Congress, uh, unicameral. Um, and uh, but they they definitely at least we still have today that that Roman um, that Roman echo in our government.
1: Yeah, because I mean the the Constitution was trying in a lot of ways to to recreate some of the the balance that the Roman Republic did in fact have um you know there there was a democratic element to uh there was a democratic element to the republic in the assemblies and there was the aristocratic element of the senate and the and the executive uh, monarchical element of um of the consuls and so they were trying to recreate that a little bit with you know the house of representatives and the senate and the uh and the president
0: and a reminder, that I'm talking uh, to Mike Duncan, the author of "The Storm Before the Storm: The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic." He's also the podcaster that you know for the history of Rome and revolutions. Uh, we've talked about a lot. Really appreciate you coming on the program. Anything that um you feel we we should have discussed that uh, that didn't happen?
1: I think we did the good work. <laughs> The only thing I would add is, if you're listening to this, you should go buy the book.
0: <laughs> yeah, I urge uh, my listeners to go out and get "The Storm Before the Storm: The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic." Um, I'm a podcaster too. You gotta support the podcast that you listen to. Uh, you know, we're all uh, out there working. If a podcaster writes a book, by all means, support them. Mike, thanks very much for coming on. My history can beat up your politics. I really appreciate you having me.